0: Chapter Twenty Eight of Bertram Cope's Year. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Bertram Cope's Year by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter Twenty Eight. Cope Absent from a Wedding. "'Cope went out on the square with his being a tingle. "'If Hortense, on another occasion, had thrown a dash of brine, "'on this occasion she had rubbed in the salt itself. "'And he had struck a harsh blow in turn. "'The flat of his mind was still stinging, "'as if half the shock of the blow had remained behind. "'But it was no time for half-measures,' he muttered to himself. "'Not again, not twice.' he repeated. Hortense remained for several days in a condition of sullen anger. She was a cloud lit up by occasional unaccountable flashes of temper. "'Whatever in the world is the matter with her?' asked her aunt in more directions than one. And Amy Leffingwell, blissfully busy over her little trousseau and her selection of china patterns, protested and opened wide, inquiring blue eyes against the intrusion of such a spirit at such a joyous time. But Hortense, though better days intervened now and then, did not improve essentially, and she contrived at the climacteric moment of Amy's career to make herself felt, unduly felt, after all. The wedding took place during the latter half of April, as demanded by the enterprising wooer. Then there would be a rapid ten-day wedding journey, followed by a prompt business-like occupancy of the new apartment on the first of May exactly. Pearson's parents, prepared to welcome Amy handsomely, and her own people, some of them, came on from Iowa to attend the ceremony. There was her mother, who had been rather disconcerted by the sudden shift, but who was satisfied with George Pearson the moment she saw him, and who found him even more vivid and agreeable than Amy's photograph of him had led her to expect. There was the aunt who had lived a bare, starved life, and who luxuriated, along with her sister, in the splendor of the Louis Quinze chamber. And there was a friendly, wide-awake brother of fourteen, who was tucked away in the chintz-room upstairs, whence he issued to fraternize in the ballroom with Joe Foster, whose exacerbated spirit he did much to soothe. This young brother was alert, cheery, chatty. He was not at all put out by Foster's wheeled chair and eye-shade, nor by the strange contortions which Foster went through when, on occasion, he left the chair for a couch or for some chair of ordinary type. He got behind the wheels, and together they made the tour of the landscapes, marines, and genre pieces which covered the walls. The boy was sympathetic, without being obtrusively so, and his comments on the paintings were confident and unconventional. So different from Secher Pelou, said Foster, with a grimace. He enjoyed immensely the fragmental half-hours given him through those two days. His young companion was lavish in his reports on life's vast vicissitudes at Fort Lodge, and was always ready with comparisons between things as observed in his home town and in Churchton itself. He came as a tonic breeze, and the evening after he departed, Foster, left moping alone in the let-down which followed the festivities, said to himself more than once, "'If I had had a boy,' I should have wanted him just like Dick. Dick's mother and aunt stood up as well as they could against the bustling, emphatic geniality of Medora Phillips, and they were able, after a little, to adjust themselves to the prosperity of the Pearsons. These, they came to feel, were essentially of the same origin and traditions as themselves, just plain people who, however, had settled on the edge of the big town, to make money and had made it, Pearson the elder, was hardly more prepotent than Mr. Lusk, the banker at home. George himself was a dashing go-ahead if he turned into a tired businessman, his wife would know how to divert him. Medora Phillips provided rice, also she satisfied herself as to where, if the newer taste were not too delicate. She could put her hand on an old shoe. She was happy to have married off Amy. She would be still happier once Amy got away. More room would be left for other young people. By other young people she meant, of course, certain young men. By certain young men she thought she meant Cope and Lemoyne. Of course, she meant Cope only. If Carolyn keeps amiable, and if Hortense contrives to regain her good nature, we may have some pleasant days yet, she mused. But Hortense did not regain her good nature. She did not even maintain her self-control. In the end, the ceremony was too much for her. George and Amy had plighted their troth in a floral bower, which, ordinarily, was a bay window before a minister of a denomination which did not countenance robes nor a ritual lifted beyond the chances of wayward improvisation and after a brief reception the new couple prepared for the motor-car dash which was to take them to a late train in the big wide hallway after amy had kissed carolyn and thanked her for her poem and was preparing for the shower of rice which she had every reason to think she must face it was a burst of hysterical laughter from somewhere behind and hortense dunton to the sufficing words oh bertram bertram emitted with sufficing clearness fainted away her words if not heard by all the company were heard by a few to whom they mattered and while hortense immediately after the departure of the happy pair was being revived and led away, they left occasion for thought. Carolyn Thorpe cast a startled glance. The aunt from Iowa, who knew that Bertram's did not grow on every bush, and whose senses the function had preternaturally sharpened for any address from romance, seized and shook her sister's arm. And, later on, in a Louis Quinze colceuse upstairs, They agreed that if young Cope really had had another claimant on his attention, it was all the better that their Amy had ended by taking George. And Medora Phillips in the front hall itself, well, to Medora Phillips in the front hall, much was revealed as in a lightning flash, and the revelation was far from agreeable. What advantage in Amy's departure if Hortense continued to cumber the ground? Hortense must go off somewhere, for a sojourn of a month or more, to recover her health and spirits, and to let the house recover its accustomed tone of cheer. Medora forced these considerations to the back of her mind, and saw most of her guests out of the house. Toward the end of it all, she found herself relaxing in the library, with Basil Randolph in the opposite chair. Randolph himself had figured in the ceremony. This had been a crude imitation of a time-hallowed form, and had allowed for an extemporaneous prayer, and for a brief address to the young couple. But it had retained the familiar inquiry, Who giveth? Who can give? asked Medora of Amy. Poor Joe was rather out of the question, and Brother Dick was four or five years too young. Was there, then, "'Any one really available except that kind Mr. Randolph?' "'So Basil Randolph, after remembering Amy with a rich and handsome present, "'had taken on a paternal air, had stepped forward at the right moment, "'and was now recovering from his novel experience. "'The two, as they sat there, said little, "'though they looked at each other with half-veiled questioning glances.' Medora, indeed, improvised a little stretch of silent dialogue, and it made him take his share. She felt dislocated, almost defeated. Hortense's performance had set her to thinking of Bertram Cope, and she figured the same topic as uppermost in the mind of Basil Randolph. "'Well, you have about beaten me,' she said. "'How so?' she made him ask with an affection of simplicity. "'You know well enough,' she returned. "'You have played off the whole university against my poor house, "'and you have won. "'Your influence with the President, "'your brother on the Board of Trustees. "'If Bertram Cope has any gratitude in his composition.' "'Oh, well,' she let him say, "'I don't feel that I did much, "'and I'm not sure I'm glad for what I did do. "'You may regret it, of course. "'The other man is an uncertain quantity.' "'Oh, come,' he said. "'You've had the inside track from the very start. "'This house and everything in it. "'You have a house of your own, now. "'Your dinners and entertainments. "'You have your own dinner table. "'Your limousine, your chauffeur, "'running to the opera and heaven knows where else. "'Taxis can always be had, yes.' She went on. You have held the advantage over a poor woman cooped up in her own house. While I have had to stick here attending to my housekeeping, you have been careering about everywhere. You, with a lot of partners and clerks in your office, and no compulsion to look in more than two or three times a week. Of course you can run to theaters and clubs. I wonder they don't dispense with you altogether. There is the advantage of a business arranged to run itself, so far as I am concerned. Yes, you have had the world to range through, shows and restaurants, the whole big city, strolls and excursions, and who knows what beside. Thus Medora Phillips continued silently, and with no exact sense of justice, to work up her grievance. Presently she surprised Randolph with a positive frown. She had made a quick, darting return to Hortense. "'I shall send her away,' she said aloud. "'The girl might join her studio friend, "'who had stopped at Asheville on her way north, "'and stay with her for a few weeks. "'Yes, Hortense might go and meet the spring, "'or even the summer, if that must be. "'The spring here in town she herself would take as it came. "'I shall welcome a few free, easy breaths "'after this past fortnight,' she finished audibly. "'Randolph squared himself with her mood as best he could. "'You are tired and nervous,' he said with banality. "'Get the last of us out and go to bed. "'I'll lead the way, and we'll give these loiterers "'as marked an example as possible.' "'Medora Phillips hushed down her house finally "'and went thoughtfully upstairs to her room. "'Amy had gone off, and Hortense was sentenced to go.' There remained only Carolyn. Was there any threat in her and her sonnets? End of chapter twenty eight. Recording by James K. White. Chula Vista.